Job chapter 1. You know, it takes a brave man to embark on Job, and it's already begun. Yesterday I found out that there was a fraudulent claim in my checking account for $900. Nice, nice. So, it's all ready. <laughs> now, as we begin to dig into Job, you would think, at least from the first two chapters of this book, that it's all about suffering, that that's the overall theme of Job. But the overall theme of this book isn't suffering. Suffering is what leads us to the, what God wants to teach us through this book. But what it's really about is his sovereignty and his relationship with us, with his creation. It is also about one particular man's relationship with the sovereign, with a sovereign God, through his faith and through his perseverance in the face of, we'd all agree, unspeakable tragedy. Now to say Job is only about suffering, we would miss those very teachable moments in this book. However, the first two chapters of this book do deal with suffering. And there isn't a person in this room this morning who has never dealt with suffering. We've all experienced that one time or another. And although suffering touches the lives of all one time or another, in one form or another, we never really welcome suffering in our lives, do we? We don't welcome it with open arms, and we're certainly not prepared for it when it does come. Now, many people have their opinions as to why Job went through what he went through. And Job has a group of friends that we're going to meet here shortly who have their own opinions. Now, I asked our growth group on Tuesday some research questions. And I asked them one specific question, why do we suffer? And I got the answer that I would expect because it's the same answer you get from most Christians as you ask that question. We generally receive two answers to that question. Why do Christians suffer? Well, first, we suffer as a result of the original sin brought into this world by Adam and Eve. We suffer because we live in a fallen world. And then the second response you generally get, and it's more direct, is that we suffer as direct consequence of our own sin. So, in other words, we suffer from the consequences of the choices that we make. And although both of those responses are true, do those answers really go to the heart of why we suffer? And I believe we answer these, this question, why do we suffer, with those two answers. They tend to be our, our, our rote answers. Is because we really, truly don't understand the question ourselves, do we? When we suffer, we really don't understand why it is that we are suffering. And so I pray that by the time we finish this book of Job, we'll have a better understanding, maybe not of why we suffer, but who God is in the midst of our suffering. Now, suffering comes at us in many different ways, but it rarely comes at us alone. It always brings along its two sisters, misery and agony. Now, the word suffering implies a conscious endurance of pain and distress. Misery stresses the unhappiness attached to sickness or poverty or loss, um, kind of like the miserable conditions the homeless live in. And agony suggests pain too intense to even bear 
like the loss of a child. Now Job, as we're going to read, and many of you have read this book before, suffered more than most. I don't know anyone who has suffered the way Job has suffered. He loses his children, he loses his livelihood, he loses his health all in one fateful day. And the reason this book resonates with us the way it does is because Job has suffered in the same ways that we've all suffered. We've all suffered the loss of a loved one. We've all suffered through financial difficulties. We've all had marital strife. We've all had health issues. And we've all been betrayed at one time or another by the hand of a friend. However, and this is the key to understanding human suffering, through it all, Job does not sin, the Bible tells us. And he does not blame God for his suffering. Now, some have asked the question, how do we harmonize the justice and goodness of God with the suffering of many, especially with those suffering when those suffering seem to be undeserved? Well, Job tackles that question. In chapter 2, he says, Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? So the question that Job poses to us is, if we receive blessings from God, even though we don't deserve them, right, Shouldn't we accept suffering even though we don't deserve that? So it's his attitude, it's Job's attitude through this, through this, in this overwhelming tragedy that we can glean from. And I hope that it's going to act as an example for us so that when we're suffering through things in our life, when we're going through our own difficulties, we can look back on Job and see how he handled it and he can be an inspiration to us. Because we see here as we go through this book that Job seeks answers from God. He asks God the hard questions. He questions them, and at times he even becomes angry with God. Now, sometimes we think that when we're in the midst of something, we can't go to our Creator. We can't wrestle with Him over the suffering we face. But Job shows us that not only can we wrestle with Him, not only can we ask Him the hard questions, not only can we get angry over what we're going through, but that He hears us, that He responds to us, and that He'll help us if we allow Him to help us grow closer to him through our suffering. And that's what we're going to see with our brother Job, that even though he wrestles with God over this loss, he remains unmoved and he stays faithful to God. One commentator, J.I. Packard, was quoted as saying, the Psalms teach us how to worship. Proverbs teach us how to behave. Job shows us how to suffer. It's the Song of Solomon, how to love, and Ecclesiastes, how to live. Now, anyone, everyone rather, suffers at one point in their life. And the book of Job shows us how to suffer and bring glory to God through that suffering. You know, at the, the first council of Nicaea in A.D. 325, there were 318 godly men who gathered to discuss the doctrinal matters and to put together the canon. You know, this is one of those meetings where the canon was installed. Of those 318 delegates, only 12 of them were whole in body. All the rest of them had been maimed or crippled as a result of being tortured for their faith. Some had lost an eye or a hand. Others had suffered broken or dislocated limbs. Some had even been scarred by branding irons. In the early days of the church, no one thought it was strange or unfair to suffer for Christ. In fact, suffering 
in the early days of the church was considered a normal part of the Christian walk, and it was actually expected. Now, that's something that Christians today can't understand. We feel as if we shouldn't go through pain, that we shouldn't go through suffering. I mean, we, we're his children. We shouldn't suffer. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't have pain in our lives. That somehow we're entitled to a life of ease, comfort, and prosperity. That's an attitude that the early church, our brothers and sisters in the early church, would never have understood. Oswald Chambers wrote, Suffering is the heritage of the bad, of the penitent, and of the Son of God. Each one ends at the cross. The bad thief is crucified, the penitent thief is crucified, and the Son of God is crucified. By these signs, we know the widespread heritage of suffering. And what that means is that whether you're saved or unsaved, we are not immune from suffering. So we need to learn to suffer in a way that brings glory to God. Well, understanding all along that when we're alone with him, it's okay to question him. It's okay to seek answers from him. It's even okay to get angry sometimes because, listen, we serve a big God who has big shoulders, and we can come to him just as we are and be real with him. Because after all, it is a process. It is part of the grief process. Now, the first two chapters of Job, we're going to be introduced to the main characters of this book. And so through these first two chapters, it's actually the stage is actually set for the rest of the book. And, and there's like 42 chapters in this book, so we're not going to go through some of these chapters, big chunks of them, and other times we're going to slow down when we hit the meaty parts. But we should be in Job when the Lord comes back, I hope. If we were to look at Job as a screenplay, the first two chapters would look something like this on the writer's storyboard. Scene one is played out on the earth where God introduces us, and that's where we're at this morning, to righteous Job. Scene two is set in heaven where the angels and Satan come before God, and Satan challenges God that Job only loves him because of the many blessings that God has bestowed upon him. And so God gives Satan permission to rock Job's world. Scene three is set back on earth where Satan then carries out this evil plot that he has. Scene four, we're back in heaven again where Satan, through all of that, could not get Job to curse God. So he asked permission to now attack Job physically, personally. Physically, he's already attacked him personally. And so scene five, the last scene is then we're back on earth and Satan carries out that plan to attack, attack Job Physically, So today we're going to learn about, we're going to have an introduction to this man named Job. A man who suffered greatly in this world. A man who remained faithful to the end, bringing glory to God in the process. So let's get started. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz. So the first question we're confronted with in this book is where is Uz? Kind of like where's Waldo, but without the telltale striped sweater that may just made him easier to find, you know. I'm sure the scholars would love that us be, have a sign or even be striped because no one's been able to find it yet. No one knows exactly where it was located. We do know that it's an ancient land. We do know that it dates back to the time of Genesis 10 when we learn of the descendants of Noah. Ham, Cush, anybody know the third one? Japheth, very good. 
We have some clues, however, in this book as to where it could have been located. And because we are who we are and because I am who I am, I like to dig into those little things and go down those little rabbit trails and kind of find out where it may have been, even though the Bible doesn't tell us. So the first clue is found right here in the book of Job. In verse 15, chapter 1, we learn that the Sabians came and attacked Job's servants, took away his donkeys and his, his, donkeys and his oxen. Now, the Sabians are descendants of Sheba. That ring a bell? Queen of Sheba? Isaiah says they were men of stature. Isaiah talks about them, and he, which tells us, it kind of gives us a description of them, that they were tall and strong. Genesis 10, 21 through 29 tells us that Noah's son, Shem, had a son named Arphaxad. And Arphaxad had a son named Eber. And Eber had a son named Joktan, and Joktan had a son named Sheba. Now, Sheba settled in South Arabia, possibly present-day Yemen. So that's clue number one. Clue number two is found in Job chapter 1, verse 17, where the Chaldeans come and kill the servants of Job and take away his camels. Now, the Chaldeans are a semi-nomadic tribe that lived someplace in southern Babylon or which is located, which located then in Mesopotamia, which is some, somewhere around modern-day Iraq now. Now, it's believed the Chaldeans were descendants of Shem's son, Arphaxad. So Uz is located somewhere between these two people groups. Now, we get another clue in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21 tells us, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you dwell in the land of Uz. The cup shall, pass, shall also pass over you, and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. Not quite sure what that's all about, but we're not studying Lamentations right now. So the land of Uz is located near Edom. It's between these two people groups, the Sabians and the Chaldeans, near Edom. And so it turns out that one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, is from Edom. Eliphaz, we learn, is the son of Esau. Esau is the founder of what? Edom. means red. So we can date this lineage even further back to Genesis 10 to Canaan, who's a son of Ham, also one of Noah's sons. Esau dwelt in the land of Canaan. So there's a connection here that links all of this together. And when you put it all together, we can surmise, we can surmise that Uz is located somewhere right around on that map that should be up on the screen right now. There we go. Located right around that area right there. Now, we're not certain. It's not, it's not dogma, but that's a really good, really good um, estimation as to where it would be. It had to be near Edom which is that spot marked on the map. And it had to be somewhere close enough for those two tribes, the Sabians and the Chaldeans, to attack. So as you can see, that spot fits perfectly. Now, that would be somewhere around modern-day Syria. Syria is a big place, no? And so that's why they really don't know exactly where it is, although it is fun to try and guess. So we do know that Uz had at least one large city because we know that Job sat at the gate of the city and judged the people of Uz. We do know that it's a fertile area because Job was able to sustain a large number of sheep, oxen, and donkeys and camels 
And we do know that his land, the land that he had, provided food for Job and, and probably for the people of this town and the city because Job is a farmer. And we learn that in verse 14 when his servants are out plowing the fields. So we don't know, however, what time or the date that this is written, although the area that we believe Uz is in is the Fertile Crescent, or better known as the ancient Mesopotamia. So we're not talking about desert life here. I mean, how many of us thought that Job took place in the desert with sand? That's not the case. This was located in the Fertile Crescent. We're not talking about desert life. We're talking about rich, fertile farmland located in the Mesopotamia. Job's not a Bedouin. He's not a nomadic. He's not like the nomadic tribes that attack his family. He's a farmer with a lot of land. There's a lot of land to tend to, a lot of land to, to plow. And we learn from all of this that Job is very wealthy. He's living a good life. He had a nice home with rich, fertile farmland all around. Job is truly blessed. And the reason that's important to establish is because sometimes we, we look at Job or somebody like Job today who's very wealthy, very successful, and we might even think that people like that don't suffer the way we suffer. They don't have the same difficulties or problems that we have. And the point is that even the rich and the poor together experience blessings and suffering. The Bible tells us that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5.45. So it makes no difference whatsoever what status we've obtained in this world. Suffering eventually knocks at everybody's door. And so it's how we respond to that. It's how we respond to that suffering that sets us apart. And that's why we have so much to learn from Job. It's Job's response to his suffering that sets the example for all of us on how to persevere through our times of suffering. Which brings us to the next question, who is Job? And so part of verse 1 said, whose name is Job? A man from us whose name was Job. Now we know a little bit more about Job than we do about the land that he lived in. His very name, Job, you know what Job means, anybody? We do their homework? His very name means persecuted. If anybody was born with a perfect name, I mean, his name means persecuted. And there's those who believe that Job is not a real person. And Job is a mythical literary figure. But God has affirmed for us through his word that Job is, in fact, a very real person. Job isn't just mentioned in the book of Job. He is mentioned outside of this book. In Ezekiel 14, 14, we read, and he's mentioned a couple times in Ezekiel 14. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver them only themselves by the righteousness, says the Lord God. James mentions in his letter the, about the perseverance of Job. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. We have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful, James 5.11. So we can establish, we can safely establish that Job is a very real person. So we have an idea where he lived, but not so much the time frame of which he lived, which we're going to talk about. 
So he was also, as we've already established, a very wealthy person. He owned a lot of property, a lot of livestock. And that made you, the fact that you own livestock, made you, people considered you very wealthy. It wasn't about money back then. It was about the livestock that you owned. He was a husband, and he's a father of ten children. Now, his children, more than his wealth in that culture, signified that he was a blessed man. The fact that he had ten kids made him truly blessed. He's a respected member of the community, which is evident in him, again, sitting at the gate, judging the people of us. We know he has friends, although those friends, that friendship, some of those friendships are going to be tested sorely. But the time frame in which this is written, the time frame of Job is not known for certain. It's not an exact certainty that we know when he lived. Many scholars believe he lived during the patriarchal period. And they base that assumption on a couple of things. Number one, Job is the one who sacrifices for his children, not the priest. So this is before the sacrificial system, before the priest. In verse 40 to 11, it speaks of a piece of silver, which is a unit of unknown weight. We don't know how much a piece of silver was in those days, but it's a similar unit of measure that's used in Genesis 33, 19. It was the type of, of, of money, let's say. It was that unit of measure that was used to pay for things that was used during the patriarchal period. So the date of this writing, as I said, remains unknown, although many believe it is one of, if not the oldest book in the Bible. I tend to believe that it is the oldest book in the Bible. And the best clue for the age of Job would be in the fact that God says that Job is a righteous man. There's no one like him on the earth. Now, if you remember... God said that about a few other people, didn't he? God said that about Noah. God said that about Enoch. And God said that about Abraham. Enoch walked with God. And God took him. That's all we, le- that's all we learn about Enoch, which means Enoch was a righteous man in the eyes of God. The Bible tells us that God says that Noah is righteous and that he walked with God. Abraham, we're told, that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, considering that that Noah lived to be 950 years old, we know that Noah was still alive during Abraham's day. So I don't think God that would say that there's no one like Job on all the earth if Noah, Abraham, or Enoch were still alive. I also think it's very possible that Job lived pre-flood. He was alive before the flood, and that would make this book one of the oldest in the Bible, next to creation and Adam, the story of creation and Adam and Eve. So if you subscribe to the fact that this is the oldest book in the Bible, I want you to think about that for a minute. Outside of Adam and Eve, this is God's earliest account, the earliest interaction with God and mankind. And notice the lesson he teaches us throughout this book, how the how and why of suffering. That's the lesson God teaches us through this. The very first lesson that God taught mankind was that sin brings death and judgment and that sin requires sacrifice to be forgiven. Then the very next lesson he teaches us is about suffering. Why? Because God knew that man, sinful man, would suffer on this earth. And he wants us to be prepared for that. He wants us to learn not so much that we're going to suffer. We see that all around us. We've seen it in our own lives but more so how to suffer, how to bring glory to him through that. 
We don't know if Job wrote this book. Many scholars believe that Moses wrote it. But we do know with all of that stuff out of the way, and that's what an introduction does, we do know that through the life of Job, we can learn some very powerful lessons. So let's look a little closer at the life of Job. Still in verse 1, God says, the Bible tells us rather, that the man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Job was not perfect. Some of your translations may say he was perfect and upright. He certainly wasn't perfect, and he certainly wasn't sinless. The Bible uses four statements here to describe this man Job. The first is he's blameless, perfect. The Hebrew word used here is tam, and it means having integrity. It means someone who's morally and ethically pure. So Job didn't have any skeletons in his closet. If Job ran for office, they wouldn't be able to find any dirt on him. Imagine that. Paul wrote to the Philippian church to conduct themselves in a way that they could not be found guilty of wrongdoing in a perverse generation. Paul wrote, do all things without complaining and disputing. Wow. That you may be blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In other words, Paul is telling them, the Philippian church, to not be like the world around them. This was Job. The world that Job lived in was already corrupt. The Sabians, the Chaldeans attack his family for their own personal gain, for their own financial gain. The world at the time of Job is going to grow worse and worse and worse. It's going to increasingly become more perverse and more corrupt until one day God's going to send a great flood to rid this world of the perverseness and the corruption. Job wasn't a part of that. He wasn't a part of what was going on in his day. He took the moral high ground. He was a light in an increasingly dark world. And we're called to be the same, aren't we? To be morally and ethically pure in the midst of an increasingly perverse generation. We live in a time such as Job. The Bible tells us that he was upright, number two. The Hebrew word for upright is yashar, yashar. And it means to stand straight, or we would, be, we would say to stand tall. When it seems like everyone else around us is doing the wrong thing, what this means is that we would do the right thing. We would stand tall and do the right thing. You know, I read an article the other day about a young man who went out to stand at his flagpole in this day, this national day of prayer, and it's called See You at the Flagpole. And it's a gathering conducted in, in probably, if not all, most high schools around the country. And as he got there, he notices that he's alone. He's standing there alone, and he at first thinks that he's just the first one there, that others are going to show up. But as he's standing there and time passes, he realizes that he's the only one, that he's the only one going to be standing there. And so people went by and took pictures of him standing there, posted it on Facebook of how this young man stood up for his faith when no one else would. And those pictures went viral. So this young man became very famous. And he later said that was his prayer, that through him standing there alone, that God would use that to touch the hearts of others. He stood tall in the face of increasingly, an increasing apathy for prayer. 
he stood tall amongst a, an environment of high school students <coughs> who mock those who are different, who mock those who stand out. Job stood tall, just like Noah did. <coughs> in the midst of a people who mocked and criticized his willingness to do the right thing when everyone else around him was doing the wrong thing. <coughs> Are we willing to stand tall? Are we willing to stand tall for what we believe in? Are we willing to stand firm on the word of God and not deny his name? Even though, even though we live in a generation of people who have begun to call good evil and evil good, are we willing to stand tall? Are we willing to make that commitment to serve our Lord even amongst a generation that's becoming increasingly perverse? Because when you make that commitment, when you make that commitment to stand tall, that commitment is going to be tested. Number three, he feared God. The Hebrew word for fear is yareh. And it means a reverent fear of God. The fear of God, or more correctly, the fear of hurting God, keeps us from caving into our sinful nature. When Joseph was being tempted by Potiphar's wife, he said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? To fear God is to not be afraid of God, it is to show respect for him. So that the respect and the re reverence that we have for God is with us in such a way that it makes us, it want, we want to submit to him, we want to obey him, we want to serve him. We want to submit to him, obey him, and serve him out of our respect for him. And so Job feared doing anything that might offend God might go against God. And that's evident by the next description, number four we have of him, he shunned evil. The word, the Hebrew word for shun is shorsor. And shorsor means to turn away from or to sour from or withdraw from or remove. Peter quotes Psalm 34 verses 12 to 16 in, in, one of, in his first letter. He says, he would love life and see good days. Let him refrain from his tongue from let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 10 through 12. Job dealt with an increasingly evil world. But he didn't let the evil in the world into his life. He shunned it. He turned away from it. He removed it from his life. He removed it from his family. Not only did he shun evil that, that existed in the world, the Bible tells us, he counteracted that by doing what was right in a world that was doing everything wrong. Job stood up for what was right. But he, and in the process, he kept himself pure from the world around him. Now, perhaps that's why he was appointed judge. Perhaps that's why the people trusted him to bring their matters to him, because he was morally, morally pure, because he was just, because he was fair, because he had integrity. Maybe that's why they made him the judge. Listen, at the end of the day, Job is a good guy. He's the least person that you would think all of this would come upon. Look at verse 2. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. 
Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So Job is truly blessed with many possessions. And I'm sure that as he was this blessed, he was envied as well. Envied by the people around him who didn't have what he had. And so we tend to look at that, don't we? We look at people's possessions, what they have, the big houses, the fancy cars, the money, the bank accounts. We look at that and consider that a blessing, don't we, sometimes? But was Job blessed because he had wealth and possessions? Or was he blessed because God said this about him? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, the fact that he had all this wealth and the fact that he had these possessions is, I believe, a direct result of the fact that everyone knew that when they came to Job, when they traded with Job, they were going to get a fair and honest deal, that they could trust Job. So he probably did more business than anyone else in the area. They sought him out to do business with him. But to have God say that you're a stand-up guy, that you have such respect for God that you turn from evil and evil world and shun it and do the right thing, that, in my eyes, is truly the blessing here. I'd rather have God say at the end that I was an upright man than have all the riches the world could offer me now. Job not only is notable in his own city, but the Bible tells us his reputation has spread throughout the East. And as we go deeper into the life of Job, we're going to discover that the wealth that he's accumulated not only benefited his family, he used it to help those in need. In Job 29 and 31, we're going to read that he rescued the needy, that he cared personally for the handicapped and the dying, that he brought orphans into his home, that he, he even took on the powerful landowners of the day by taking them to court and arguing the cases for the underprivileged. So Job really was a good guy, a stand-up guy. He's a good man with a good heart. And we could even say that he was a man after God's own heart. But none of that prevented Job from going through what he's going to go through. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. This tells us just how close-knit this family is. This is a family that loved each other. This is a family that respected each other a family that spent time with one another. Now, most scholars believe this appointed day that this talks about. And the problem with Job is that some of the language in here is so ancient that the scholars have a hard time even translating it sometimes. Some feel that this feast was celebrated on the birthday of the brothers. This is a time when it's before the appointed feast, the appointed feast that God gave Israel that they had to attend so many times a year but if this was the brothers birthdays we'd have to assume that there were well there were seven of them right so if they were each born in a separate month that would make at least seven birthday months out of the year but that's a lot of assuming isn't it this could just refer to a day set aside at the end of the harvest maybe at the end of some other significant happening on the farm or maybe it was just the end of the week, like we would have a barbecue just to have, you know, an end of the week kind of thing. 
But each time this celebration, whatever it was for, happened, the brothers, one of the brothers, would host it in his home. And so they would all get together from time to time, and each brother would host it, a different brother would host it each time. Now, it doesn't mean that the children of Job didn't work. I'm certain they all worked the fields, they all tended to the animals, they all worked very hard. This is a large farm, this is a large piece of property, so the work on this farm was probably very hard work, and I don't believe Job's sons and daughters are any strangers to hard work. We can also look at this and say, because his sons each had their own home, that's a, that tells us about their status and what they've achieved. It also lets us know that the sisters didn't live on their own. The sisters lived with their parents as the brothers invited them to their homes for these celebrations. Now, I don't want to read too much in this. I just want to give you some surface information so that we understand a little bit better who Job is as we go into this. But I just want you to understand this is a loving family, a close-knit family, and they're enjoying what the Lord has blessed them with. And so it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning, and after burnt offerings, according to the number of them all, for Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. This gives us another indication of the age of this book. It's written at a time when the man was the priest of the household. The sheep Job raised were not only for use for clothing, but also for sacrifice. Now, the sacrifice of animals for the covering of sin goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. When God sacrificed at least two animals to cover Adam and Eve after they sinned. It goes all the way back to Cain killing Abel over that sacrifice. That Abel had sacrificed a burnt offering which was pleasing and acceptable to God. And Cain brought a sacrifice from the ground that he tilled and was not acceptable to God. So the sacrifice of an animal for the covering of sin had, long, had, a long, had, had been a long-established practice by the time of Job. And so Job offers an animal for sin, maybe for the sin that they had committed, although there's no indication here as we read through this that they had committed any sin, but also for the sins they may have committed. Sin, any sins they committed outwardly, and any sins they may have committed inwardly in their thoughts, maybe thoughts that they harbored, maybe cursing God, it says. For all of that, Job prayed for them. And he did this continually, or all the days of his life. What a wonderful example for us as parents and grandparents to always pray for our children and grandchildren, to ask God to forgive them. We can do that, you know. We can ask God to forgive our children. We can ask God to forgive our nation. We see that in Daniel. The Bible tells us to pray for the forgiveness of other sins, doesn't it? In 1 John we read, If anyone sees a brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. So we're to pray for brothers and sisters caught up in sin. We're to pray for believers, this tells us. And we know it's believers because when we sin, it doesn't lead to death, does it? Because Jesus already died for our sins. The only sin that leads to death, to eternal death, is the rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
So the Bible instructs us to pray for forgiveness for believers and even for non-believers. And we see that with Jesus. As the Roman soldiers were nailing him to the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As the Jews were stoning Stephen, he knelt and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Acts chapter 7, verse 60. So pray. Pray on a regular basis all the days of your life. Intercede for your children and your grandchildren. It's one of the many blessings that we have in Christ that we get. Listen to this. We get to pray for our family. So the question looms as we go through this book. Why do we suffer? And as I said before, this book will not completely answer that question. But it will give us a better understanding of who God is and how he works in our lives through our suffering. Now the next section of Job, when we get to it, is going to be very hard to read. Because there is so much loss, there is so much pain, and you may be asking yourself even, why Job? Why Job? We just got done the last half hour or so hearing about how great Job was, how great a guy he was. So why Job? We ask ourselves, we ask the same question of God, don't we, when we're going through something. Why me, God? Why am I going through this? What did I do? Did I do something against you? Anybody ever ask that question? Why me? And as we go through this book, we're going to discover, as Job did, that God is sovereign over all creation. That he knows the beginning from the end. That God knew before Satan ever came to the meeting that day what would transpire in the life of his servant. How his servant would respond to everything that Satan was going to throw at him. God knew before he ever gave permission to Satan to wreak, ha wreak havoc on Job's life what his response to that suffering would be. God is known over the centuries with all of his people that we would suffer and experience loss and pain and how would we, we would respond to that suffering and that loss. God knew that Job would remain faithful through all of it and that his story in the end would inspire millions of faithful Christians after Job to persevere through their own trials. I've personally turned to this book many times in my suffering. I've been inspired many times by my brother Job, especially with two very specific verses in the book of Job that I've always leaned on. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Those two powerful statements from our brother Job have inspired countless Christians throughout the ages to suffer and bring glory to God through that suffering. So why Job? Why Job? He's the righteous. He's the most righteous in all the land. He's the greatest in all land. He was a man of God. But God knew that his servant Job would bring him glory and honor through his suffering, that Job would persevere through this greatest trial. In a time in the world when perhaps Job was the only one that God could go to who knew that he would remain faithful through this perhaps do you ever think of that that job was the only one in all the land at that time that god knew would respond the way that he responded only god can know that we have to understand that god's ways are not our ways his thoughts are not our thoughts and you know i remember the words of a pastor one day who said that his, that he prayed his father prayed for the ministry and eventually, the son took over the ministry from the father. And all the prayers that the father had prayed for his own ministry, 
wound up being answered in his son's ministry. Son never understood why, but God knew. God knew that the very things that the father was praying for, the father didn't need in the ministry at that time, but his son, who would come later, needed, would need in his ministry. So God knows things that we don't, things that we may never figure out. But that's why he's God and we're not. That's why we have to trust him in all the areas of our lives. The suffering we, we endure may be a result of the fallen world we live in. It may be a result of the, the consequences of our own sin. Or maybe, just maybe, the suffering we get, go through may be so that our faithful perseverance through that suffering could be an inspiration to someone else going through the same thing. Paul wrote, now if we're afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Paul's another one who's no stranger to suffering. And the more he suffered, the closer he drew to God. The closer he drew to God, the more God used him to reach others. The more God used him as an inspiration to others. God used Paul's faithful perseverance, just like Job's, to inspire many to persevere through their trials. But not just persevere, to come through it stronger in their faith and closer to God than ever before, so that they could be used then by God to inspire others. God used the faithfulness of Paul to lead others to salvation. Paul had quite a testimony to share. Can you imagine sitting down with Paul and having him share all that God had done in his life and then asking you if you wanted Christ in your heart? Can you imagine the impact his testimony? Here's this faithful man who had remained faithful through all of that and still loved and served the God who brought him through that. Can you imagine the testimony, the powerful testimony that he had? Now, I remember a woman right here in this area who was dying from cancer, and her son, or her nephew, rather, called me from another Calvary chapel and asked me if I'd go visit her. And I had sent one of the women from the church here to try and get to see her twice. And each time, her husband threw her out. And so the woman finally came back to me one Sunday morning and said, I can't get in there. I think this is your job. And I had to hang my head and say, yeah, I've, I felt that from day one. <laughs> I was trying to get out of it. But I went and visited her, ex fully expecting to be thrown out by the husband. And when I got there, it was just her and her daughter. And I told her who I was. I was a pastor here. And the daughter said, do you want to talk to him? And she said, no. And before I left, I just shared with her, my fiance had just passed away from cancer not very long before this day. And I had shared with that with her, and the daughter looked at her and, and asked her again. And she said, yeah, I'll talk to him. And I had the blessing of leading that woman to Christ that day. She died two days later. It was only through my suffering that the connection existed with her that no one else had that day, that no one else had when they went with her to talk to her. And it was through that connection, through my suffering, that I was able to she was able to open up to me and let me open up to her, and that led her to Christ. You know, prior to my fiancé dying, we went to an office visit, and I came out, and she's sitting on a chair next to an elderly man witnessing to him. And he came to Christ through that. Now, he may not have listened to anyone else, 
but someone who was suffering as he was, someone who was persevering through it, and who had an awesome relationship with God even in the midst of it, to her, he listened. So God has reasons for why we suffer. And it's not for us to know why. It's for us to know what and how. What do you want me to learn from my suffering, Lord? How do you want to use me through this suffering, Lord? Because when we ask why, we get stuck in our grief. We get stuck there trying to figure out the answer to why for ourselves. But when we ask what and how, that means we're moving forward. We're available to God to use for, to inspire others. And that brings him glory and honor. Now, we can search our whole lives, and believe me, believe me, I've asked this question many times, why? And we can search our whole lives and never know the answer to why. Or we can submit our lives to God and allow him to use our suffering to draw us closer to him and to be an inspiration to others. Because in that way, our suffering has purpose. Because then it can be used as a light to draw others to Christ. So think about that the next time you're going through trials and hardship. Ask God to use you in the midst of your own suffering to help others going who are going through hardships. And you're going to be amazed at how God will use that and how through that you'll grow, grow closer to him. I know it sounds crazy, but you actually grow closer to God through your suffering. In the end, that's exactly what God wants for all of us, to draw closer to him. That's what you're going to discover as we go through this book of Job that happened to Job. Through his suffering, it drew him closer to God than he ever was before. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that even through suffering, we can learn things, Lord. We can learn about you. We can learn about your sovereignty. We can learn who you are through our suffering. And Lord, more importantly, when we ask what do you want us to learn and how do you want to use us? It is those questions, Lord, that begin to help us to grow in you and to be a light to others, to be an inspiration to others. So, Lord, we pray that for our own lives, that the next time we go through a trial, through a tribulation, that you use it, Lord, to draw us closer to you, to bring you glory and honor. And we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.